Welcome, everybody. Thank you again for being with us here at Wilshire. We're glad that you've come. Members, we're glad you're here, of course, and uh, visitors, we are very glad that you've joined us. And um, as was already mentioned at the beginning of the worship service, we have a little time of fellowship right after this uh, period of worship and uh, visitors. We hope that you'll share some coffee with us, maybe some donuts, and uh, give us a chance to talk to you, meet you, and uh, you get to know us a little bit too. After that, we'll have a Bible class, and we hope that you'll come and, uh, and share some time with us. Uh, Wilshire, tonight, uh, at the 5 o'clock service, we are starting a month-long look at practical forgiveness. Forgiveness is a big theme throughout the New Testament, uh, but sometimes we stay at the theoretical level and we don't get down into what it's actually like to carry that out in our lives. So tonight, uh, Jeremy and I are, are going to be looking at that all month long. So tonight we'll, we'll kick that off. If you're able to come, we would like to have you so we can begin that study. Um, we've seen a variety of debates in politics lately uh, during the Democratic primaries. Uh, we've seen these massive debates with lots and lots of candidates on the stage slowly being whittled down. And uh, you may have various opinions about how you thought those went. But, but, you know, I just wonder psychologically, what would it be like to actually be on one of those debate stages? Think about how much is riding on that. Uh, you, you've worked really hard to get up on that stage. You've worked really hard to have all those spotlights and all those cameras and all that attention focused on you. And then all of a sudden it comes down to, in some cases, what you said over the course of nine minutes or seven minutes. They were, they were actually timing how much each candidate spoke in one of the debates, you know. Thirteen minutes. Fifteen minutes was actually a pretty good performance, uh, getting fifteen minutes of talking in. That it all comes down to that. What kind of pressure is that? This is a make or break situation over and over again for these candidates. You can just one wrong word, just one wrong soundbite, and your whole career and your whole chances at election go down the tube. So I wanted to get that image in your mind because that's about as close as we can get to what's going on in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus essentially has been playing uh, the suburbs for a long time. He's been in Galilee, he's been in Capernaum, uh, and other towns around there in the northern part of where the Jews live. And only recently has he now come near Jerusalem. And just in the last couple of days has he finally entered Jerusalem for this last week. And he comes in with a bang, he comes in with this parade across the Mount of Olives, acting out the prophecy of Zechariah, your king comes riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Uh, people burst into praise, it's, it's, it's that prophecy. They, they use the words of Psalms 118, Hosanna, Lord save, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He, he directly challenges the people who are running things in the temple. 
uh, essentially accusing them of turning the whole thing that's supposed to be a house of praise for God, a house of, of prayer for God, into just a big den of robbers. And he pronounces parables of judgment, which we studied last week, uh, that, that the leadership, the whole leadership structure of the Jewish people are like evil tenants who are trying to seize the land for themselves and they refuse to pay what's due and, and they're going to come to a miserable end. And so now, with all the spotlights focused on him and all eyes turned to him, the, the smartest, best educated, best credentialed people in the nation of the Jews comes to put him in his place. It's a public debate in the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus, one guy, against whoever wants to come against him. And that's, that's the summary. That's what's going on in chapter 22. Matthew gives us a summary. He just gives us kind of the, the high points of the different kinds of questions that were fired at Jesus during this period. It is a make or break period. Jesus can mess up and lose all of his support. That's the intent of the questions. Trap after verbal trap is laid out for him. Will he make a mistake that will finally allow the leaders in Jerusalem to shear away his supporters, uh, which they have done in the past. It's worked in the past, and they're hoping it'll work for him. And so we got these three stories that Matthew tells us. Uh, We know that there were other episodes too, but these three that that are kind of highlighted are are very interesting. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, by the way, that was a brilliant, brilliant debating question. And the difference between a debating question and a real question is, with a debating question, you don't really care about what the truth is. You just want the political impact of the question. And that was a brilliant political question or debating question because... There had actually been, when Jesus was about 10 years old, in about 6 CE, there had been a violent Jewish revolt against the Roman tax. People had died to avoid paying the temple tax. The people that were there, I mean, not the temple tax, the Roman tax, and people that were there in Jerusalem had memories of relatives of theirs who had been killed to fight against this unjust pagan, uh, demon-worshipping, you name you know, what would be said about it, and I'm sure it was said on the streets of Jerusalem, this tax is an unholy, ungodly, uh, uh, unrighteous thing, and nobody who really loves God would be in favor of it. You can imagine what the feelings were like still, uh, uh, even two decades later. And, and so this is a really good question to ask Jesus for political purposes. You're trying to shear away 
his supporters. We know you don't care about what other people say. You don't follow the polls, Jesus. We know you don't care about Caesar and his authority. You don't regard people. All you care about is God's truth. So answer the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says it's right to pay them, then so many people will be outraged by that. Because they have relatives who fought against those taxes. And and it was viewed as going to support the very soldiers that were then on the streets to oppress them. If he says it's not right to pay them, then the Pharisees can go straight to Pilate's palace right then and say, Look, we got a guy out here advocating a return to the tax revolt. You got to put him down. You got to lock him up. You got to crucify him. Do it today. You cannot wait. Either answer Jesus gives is designed to destroy him. It's a good debating question. So, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, play actors, mask wearers. You hypocrites, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin that's used for paying the tax. And they brought him the Daenerys. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Uh, Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, then give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That was a really, really smart answer. Jesus said, you know, some of you are so against this tax that you're telling people it's wrong to even have the coins of Caesar in your possession. Some of you even go so far as to say to own the coins of Tiberius Caesar. That was the Caesar at the time. To own the coins of Tiberius Caesar because they are graven images That is a violation of God's commandments, the Ten Commandments. Make no graven images. You are carrying around little idolatrous symbols in your pockets. There were people who were saying things like that uh, on the streets of Jerusalem. And so Jesus starts by kind of taking the wind out of the sails of his critics. In front of the crowds, he says, anybody got one of those abominable coins? And sure enough, these guys aren't poor. They all got them. And somebody pulls one out and hands it forward to Jesus. And he says, well, let's look at this thing that all the controversy is about. Let's look at this coin. Well, look. Whose face is that? Well, that's Tiberius' face. Whose inscription is that? Well, that's Emperor Tiberius' inscription. It's got his image on it got his name on it. Who do you think this coin belongs to? I say, it's his coin. Let's give it back to him. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Little little metal disc. And give to God all that belongs to God. That was a great move. They were amazed, it says. That's That's an understatement. They they were kind of left without a place to maneuver to at that point. They didn't really know 
where to go. It was really good. And it was deeper than that. Not only did Jesus, you know, avoid the pitfall that they had laid out for him, but he also set them up. This is so, this is such a Jesus answer, really, because it's almost perfectly balanced. Uh, If you don't want to know what it is you need to give to God, you can just walk away. You don't have to ask any further questions. You can leave with your mind just as dark as before. If you're not interested in, well, he said I should give to God what's God's. I wonder what that, if you're not interested in that question, which sometimes people just aren't interested in God, you can just walk away and be as ignorant as you were when the day started. But if you are interested in the question, well, I wonder what I should give to God, then Jesus has kind of given you a hint. What should I give to God? Well, how did he decide what we, what we should do with the coin? He said, well, the coin has Caesar's image on it, so you should probably give that to Caesar. Well, where's God's image? Oh, I don't like where this is going. We turn back to Genesis chapter 1. It says the image of God is it's me. I bear the image of God. I've got to give me. To God. I've got to give all of me to God. If you want to know the answers about God, they're there to be found. If you're interested in the truth about God, it's there to be found. But if you want to walk away, God lets you walk away. Jesus says, render to God, give to God that which belongs to God. And what belongs to God is you. That's what God wants. He wants you. He is intimately, deeply interested that you be his. He wants you back from wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you feel has separated you from him. God says, no, I want you to come back to me. The trap was, who do the taxes belong to? The solution was, ownership is determined by image. God owns you because you bear his image. Whatever the fall has done to it, whatever sin has done to it, you bear the image of God and you belong to him. That's one trap. The next trap is even more intricate. It involves a long hypothetical story, something that would be very weird if it actually happened in real life, but it doesn't matter. It's a debating question. That same day, the Sadducees came, who say there is no resurrection. They came to him with a question. Jesus, our teacher, they said, Moses told told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. That's the Leverite law. It occurs in a number of places in the law of Moses. Now, there are seven brothers among us. The first one married but died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. So, here's the scenario This woman never has children. She marries in succession seven brothers, as the Leverite law would require, the law of Moses would require. 
So she's legally, officially married to seven different men. They all die and she dies. So here's the question. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she, uh, will the, will she be of those seven since they were all married to her? That's a good question. That's a really good question. The Jews had examples of men being married to multiple wives. They didn't practice it much in the first century, but in the ancient times, Abraham had multiple wives. Isaac did, well, not Isaac, uh, Jacob did. And obviously the kings of Israel had had multiple wives on times, other people. So they recognized that. They did not recognize ever that women could be married legitimately to more than one man. So Jesus has no good answer here to give. And this, you can imagine this as being an answer that the the Sadducees had used over and over again to kind of stump the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, yeah, of course there's a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees said, I don't think there is a resurrection from the dead. And it was a debate between these two religious political groups back and forth. And this was one of the killer arguments we imagine the Sadducees using against the Pharisees. There's no resurrection from the dead because look at this crazy situation. This woman would end up having seven husbands. We know that can't be true. So there can't be a resurrection from the dead. That's the trap. Who is this seven times widow married to? What's the solution? Well, Jesus says this. He actually uses two different principles to answer Jesus replied, verse 29, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am, this is Exodus 2, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. That's a great two-part answer. The first part solves the puzzle completely. He says, the resurrection doesn't work like this life. One of the reasons we say, until death do us part is because marriage is until death. Marriage is until, if you're filling out the blanks, that's the the answer. Marriage is until death. And the reason is, one of the things that dies in the next age, one of the things that dies in the age of the kingdom of heaven, is death. Why do we have marriage in the first place? Why do we have Uh, This institution of marriage. We have this institution of marriage so children can be born and raised in a protected way, taken care of in the home. Children are vulnerable. They need parents to take care of them. We create marriage so that children can be nurtured and taken care of. Why do we need children? Excellent question. Why do we need children? Because they're wonderful. Avenel, they're wonderful. 
Uh, we need children because this is a world where death still rules. And where people get old and die. And we have to replenish the earth, as the old King James translates Genesis chapter 1. So we need children so that we can take, have people born to take the place of those that have passed on. But in the new world, there's no death. There's no dying. There's no disease. In the age to come, that's none of that. That's all gone. And actually, that was the standard teaching. The Pharisees knew that. And they could have answered the Sadducees the same way. Jesus says, if there's no death, there's no need for new birth, new life. And if there's not not that, then there's no need for this thing that we call marriage. Marriage isn't needed. We're not raising children. Where children aren't a part of the, the fabric of reality anymore. That's a weird thing to think about. All of us have kind of uh, hard for us to wrap our mind around what that next age will be like. If you're confused by that, join the club. There's a lot that's confusing and hard for us to imagine about the next age. But I think Jesus is exactly right. In the next age, marriage won't be part of the fabric. But he goes further than that. And he says, you Sadducees, You don't believe in all of that that I just said because you've already denied that there is a next age where we'll live again. So let me talk about what you do believe. You believe what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So you Sadducees, is God the God of the dead? That was a live question in the ancient world. The Greeks had a God of the dead. They had a couple, actually. The Egyptians had a God of the dead. They actually had a couple as well. The Mesopotamians had a kind of creepy God of the dead. Actually, all of the God of the dead ended up being pretty creepy. So, God of the dead was a real category. There were were people who had worshipped and, and, and sacrifice to the God of the dead. And so Sadducees, are you happy saying that's what our God is? God of the dead. They weren't happy with that. They knew that couldn't be true. God doesn't say, I used to know a guy named Abraham. I used to know a guy named Isaac. I used to know a guy named Jacob, but they're all gone now. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God. Of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I almost get chills realizing what Jesus is claiming there and what that verse means. The first question tells us you bear the image of God, you belong to God. The second question tells us this anyone who belongs to God, always belongs to God. If you belong to God, nothing can take you away from Him. And that includes death. Jesus says, 
Our belief that there is a life after death is not based on philosophical arguments. It's not based on anything other than, it doesn't have to be grounded on anything other than just this. God is the God of the living and he, we belong to him. He will not let death separate us from him. That is a powerful teaching. The last question is also intended as a trap. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees together, verse 34 says, one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? The trap here was which commandment are more important and which are less. Which commandments are more important and which are less. This will be great. Any answer that Jesus gives, they can say, oh, so you don't really care about honor your father and mother. Oh, I see now what our candidate for kingship is claiming. He doesn't really care about that graven image, a commandment. Or he, he obviously doesn't care much about the whole don't sow two kinds of seed in the same field. Clearly, he doesn't love the law like he should or whatever the slander was planned to be. Any answer Jesus gives, they think they can come up with a response. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these Two commandments. Jesus goes ahead and bites the bullet. He says, yeah, there's an important commandment. The most important commandment. And it's one you kind of know already. If you've thought about it at all, you know what holds all the other commandments together. And actually the Jews had this tradition. Their own teachers had said something like this as well. Rabbi Hillel had said it almost 80 years earlier than Jesus says it here. The solution is humans are originally built to love God and love each other. That's your design plan. When it says you're made in the image of God, God is love. That's the image that you are meant to bear. You are designed to love God. You are designed to love the people around you. You want to know why you're unhappy? If we took a poll of this room, there are over 200 people in here, we would get over 400 answers (laughs) as to why we all think we're unhappy. But the ultimate source of human unhappiness is really just this. We were designed to love God and to love each other. And we constantly, constantly try to work against our design plan. We make ourselves miserable again and again and again. It's not that there aren't other problems as well. There's disease and there's tragedy of various kinds. But the real gnawing heart of our unhappiness and unease in this life is just that. Those places where 
I am running away from love of God or running away from love of those around me. I am built for this. We are meant to judge everything else by these two. Love God, love each other. We are meant to judge everything by these two. You want to be happier? Love God more. You want to be happier? Love people more. You want to show your love of God? Show it by loving people more. There are hungry people. Feed some of them. You're not God. You can't solve world hunger. But you've got some power. Use some of it to feed some hungry people. Clothe some naked people. Comfort some grieving people. You've got some power. And I'm telling you that that's your design will rejoice when you do what you were built for. It builds within you. The more you can give yourself over to loving God, and loving those around you, the more joy you have, the more resilience you have to the knocks and pains of this life, and the more ready you make yourself for the next life. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. had a fight with anybody in your life lately? Satan does not care who wins in that fight. You have a fight at work, you have a fight at the home, husband and wife, parents and children, children versus children. Fight over politics, fight over money. Fight over in-laws. Fight over politics. Did I mention that one twice? This is the year for it, sorry. Satan doesn't really care who wins the fight. He cares how you fight. Satan is, in politics, pretty bipartisan. In marriage, he really doesn't take sides He just wants to figure out ways to use conflict in your life to drag you down from love. That's what he wants. If in the heat of a conflict with your husband and wife or your children or your parents or or siblings with each other, or, or some argument you got into at work over politics or sports or whatever, if in the heat of that argument he can get you to just Shave the truth so you can win. He gets you to deviate from love of God. Because God is the God of truth. And he gets you to spill over into angry abuse. Maybe because they're abusing you. And he gets you to join them in that, taking the argument to that level. He wins because he gets you to deviate from love one another. 
And so Satan's game goes. He, he doesn't really care who wins the fight. He just wants the fight as a source of temptation for you to drag you down from what he knows will make you happy and make you fulfill God's design for your life. God wants you. He owns you. Your image is his image. He stamped himself on your heart. The image of eternal, overflowing love and generosity. And and he wants that to come out of your life right now. And increasingly so as the Holy Spirit gives you power until the day that you die and beyond that into the age to come, into the kingdom of heaven, you bear the image of the one to whom you belong. Overflowing in love of God, overflowing in love of each other. Christians, that's our calling. If you want to respond to the calling of God, if you need prayers or help of some kind to to live more according to your calling, or if you need today to take that first step of asking Jesus to wash away your sins in the waters of baptism, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.